You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today we have Seth Ferguson, Canadian real estate investor with a huge portfolio in the United States of America. Please help me to welcome our today's guest. How are you, Seth? I, I'm good. How, how's it going? Thanks so much for being with us today, and I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks a lot. Uh, I would like to start with uh, your beginnings on multifamily and the reasoning of the switch between as a Canadian to the U.S. market. Yeah, so uh, that that takes me back uh, to uh, when my son was born. Um, you know, I, at the time uh, we. You know, I was doing some single family uh, investing with my partner at the time. And it was, you know, like a lot of investors, single family home investors in hot markets, we were equity rich, but cash flow poor. Yeah. So I remember this one time uh, that the drain out to the sewer, uh, a, a tree root had gone through it. So it had to be totally uh, replaced and repaired. And that cost $8,000. And that basically wiped out like three years of cash flow on the property yeah. uh, because, you know, it, it was just an appreciation play uh, and there's no cash flow there. And, you know, that made financing tough, you know, residential financing is, you know, the burden shouldered uh, by, by the borrower, uh, the poor cash flow. Uh, it, it just, it, it wasn't scalable. Hmm. So when my son came along and uh, you know, I wanted to do bigger stuff for him now because he, he was in my life. Uh, I, I knew that single family wasn't going to get me to the scale I wanted to be at. You know, I, I remember sitting down and working out how many houses I would have to own to hit my real estate goal. And it was like a thousand houses. So I don't know about you, but owning a thousand houses is just pure insanity. Like, doesn't like, make sense. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. So, you know, I, I needed to look for a different uh, type of real estate asset I could own and scale. So I looked at industrial, retail, office, mobile home parks, self-storage, and, and multifamily. And uh, multifamily made a whole lot of sense to me. Hmm. Uh, you know, I, people always need a place to live. Uh, you know, we saw that over the past couple of years. People will close up their offices. Uh, you know, hmm. people will, you know, relocate uh, their businesses, go virtual, but people still need a place to call home. Um, and, and multifamily was rock solid. And you look at the past, you know, three recessions, it multifamily outperformed all the other real estate asset classes. So, um, you know, when I was looking for a place to transition to a real estate asset to transition to multifamily ticked a whole lot of boxes and, and made a whole lot of sense. And uh, that, that's when I made the switch over. Makes sense. Makes sense. So going back now to the main focus, to be honest, is uh, the U.S. market right now, especially after the inflation, um, the cap rate is really compressed in a lot of markets. Some of the markets has already been already appreciated, doubled uh, within the last 12 years. Uh, coming to this question, when you're doing a, a market analysis, you mentioned that you're focusing on Texas and Florida. Um, one of the things is, uh, for me is what is going to happen uh, when the market crash, uh, especially that right now you're not looking anymore to cap rate, you're looking uh, for price per door. So... Um, so you you have like you have two different uh, packages here, which is for example in Memphis you're looking for 
um, steady market only with cash flow within uh, and versus taxes with appreciation, less cap, less cap rate and, and so on. So how you make the bargain and, and choose which market you prefer? Well, you know, we, we look for very specific market drivers. You know, uh, right now what's happening in the southeastern U.S., I think there's a lot of runway left there. Uh, we have people fleeing both coasts, uh, you know, not only to escape escape taxation, but uh, all the jobs are moving to the southeastern U.S. Uh, you, know, you look at, you know, you, you, you name it, like even Joe Rogan, <laughs> the podcast king, uh, you know, left. And uh, and is is going there. So a, a lot of business, a lot of money is moving there. The jobs are moving there, and you know we, we've seen it for hundreds of years. People will follow jobs, um, and, and right now GDP growth is very strong, um, and we've seen you know population growth uh, quite strong too. Uh, you look in the southeastern U.S., you have a a wide variety of employment and industry sectors uh, that that make these markets very stable, and and I think policy plays a fact into that as well. Uh, you look at taxation policy, uh, that's a big plus, uh, very pro-business. Uh, you know, you look at California, you can't, you can't tax a state uh, into success. You, you can't fix a, a problem through taxation, but that's what's going on in California. So um, for, for those reasons and many more, uh, that, that's why we're focusing on, you know, Texas and, and Florida. And uh, like I said before, I think we've got a lot of runway left in terms of growth. You look at the, the demographic shifts uh, occurring right now in the U.S. population. Um, that's going to keep keep happening, and uh, then you add in uh, immigration numbers to that. Um, you know the, the numbers look very good if you're a, an apartment uh, building owner. Uh, that's perfect. Uh, but going to this point about the population growth, is this is a basic shift because of uh, the COVID nineteen and everyone is immigrant from. Um, New York and Washington and big states, or is this going to be like permanent? Because you mentioned that there's an actual job growth there on this market. So this is yeah. a basically an actual, like, for example, Cincinnati, Ohio, uh, the, the market is appreciated. Uh, there's a job growth, but not too much. The cap rate is perfect, but what is going to happen after two, three years when everything is going back to normal and everyone want to get back to New York, for example? Yeah, well, you, you look at the, the demographic shift, like that was happening long before COVID even existed. No. You know, we've been watching this trend for the past, you know, eight years, let, let's say, um, and, and every year it's fascinating. Um, you know, some, uh, some major brokerages and some analytics companies, they'll publish maps. And it, it's, it's interesting to see, you'll see, you know, positive population growth, negative population growth, and you could segment that uh, by age group. And, uh, you know, young people uh, for, let's say, the past decade have been leaving the East and West Coast uh, because, like, the affordability isn't there, uh, the, the jobs aren't there, uh, they're being taxed through the roof. Um, so, so they've been going to where the jobs and the taxation is better. Um, okay. It didn't really, you know, COVID presenting some, presented some challenges, but the, the, the shift is not happening because of COVID. Uh, you know, that was in place well before, and it's going to continue for well after. Um, you know, for, for Canadian listeners, right, it's, it's kind of like right now, if you're living right downtown Toronto, where's affordability, right? If you're a young person starting out, you're not going to afford living right downtown Toronto. You're going to look somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, right now, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of interest in Calgary uh, for, mm -hmm. for people to go to. Um, it, it's, it's the same thing happening. 
Um, except in the U.S., uh, you know, in especially Texas, like there's no rent control. <laughs> so uh, from a policy perspective, it, it's it's a lot better. 100%. So this is basically one of the yes part of uh, U.S. is it's more uh, landlord friendly versus like Ontario is more like a tenant uh, friendly. So there's no rent control. Uh, you can enhance, add value. Um, you, you can have your, your own strategy, basically. And I, I think this is one of the reasons for you to emigrate to be basically to the U.S. market. Yeah, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of the value-add uh, event, in, investing strategy. Um, and just in case somebody's not familiar what value-add is, it's basically you're acquiring an underperforming asset um, and you're doing improvements to it, whether it's uh, through physical renovation, you know, physically changing the property, or through operational improvements. So whether that's uh, branding, uh, management, uh, you know, expense optimization, you know, anything uh, under that umbrella. Um, and basically we're looking at bringing that asset to the market standard. Uh, so if we are acquiring a property that's under rented and mismanaged, we'll go in, improve that property and bring it up to where the market is today. Um, so, you know, and people talk about a lot about cap rates uh, right now, but it's, you know, as long as you're going in and you're improving the asset and you're doing so in a, in a proven way, like you, you have your rent comparables, uh, you have your sale comparables, you know exactly what the market's going to bear. Uh, if you know that you can bring uh, your average rent per unit from $1,500 to uh, $1,800 a month mm. and you have the support of the market, you know, you are manufacturing your own value in that case. Mm. Uh, to me, that is a much more sustainable and much more controllable way of investing rather than purchasing a building using a, a core or core plus strategy where you're just banking on appreciation to move your asset up. Hmm. Um, and you know when you factor in rent control, uh, that puts a big uh, screwdriver in it uh, because you can't you can't recoup um, you can't re you can't earn a return. Uh, that you would be expecting to earn by risking your capital in the marketplace. So I, I think it's a totally backwards uh, policy. Mm. And I think it ends up hurting the tenant as multiple studies have shown that rent control cities or rent control provinces, uh, rents actually become less affordable than in a rent control, uh, a non-rent controlled environment. Um, so, you know, for, for, for those reasons, we're definitely looking south of the border. Uh, you know, because we want to be able to control, uh, you know, the money we put in, uh, what we can do to the asset. And with the end benefit of being for the tenant, you know, if we're able to improve an asset and provide a better living experience, the tenant be benefits, we benefit, our investors benefit, everybody wins. And um, I think it's unfortunate when you, know, you have a couple bad apples uh, in, in an apartment community and, and the and the legislation doesn't allow you to remove them. You know, what about the 99% of all the good tenants there who just want a safe place to live, but then you have to go through hoops and hoops just to remove a bad actor who shouldn't be there in the first place. So that's a bit of a rant. I could go on for hours about rent control, but uh, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. It's not existing. I think in some states, all of this is rent control uh, uh, states, uh, especially Texas and um, I think Florida. Uh, Oklahoma, all of this uh, state is rent, rent control free. So, yeah. Yeah. And then you look at California uh, and compared yeah. to Ontario, you yeah. know, even California's rent control isn't as onerous as Ontario's. Uh, yeah. So 
you know, everybody's in the U.S. is, oh, California's rent controlled, but then you compare it to, uh, you know, Ontario, it doesn't, even, it doesn't even match up. So, yeah, for, for it's unfortunate that we do have rent control. I think, you know, getting rid of it would, would bring about a lot of improvement and change hmm. uh, and, and also provide more affordable housing because then you have more incentive to, uh, to have purpose-built rental uh, buildings rather than just a developer now just doing condos because that's where they make the money. Um, so yeah. you know th there's a lot of factors that go into that but uh, i i think if we had a policy shift then uh then we'd see some uh, good changes 100 percent. so my next question again about uh, the criteria now is a compressed cap rate because of the new interest rate right now you can see like in atlanta for example um the, the rate is going to 3.5 the cap rate uh, yeah. for the purchase price um, so this is uh, coming back to the same numbers I think in Hamilton here and 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 um, and um, uh, Guelph, uh, London, even Ontario. I'm not gonna say on uh, Toronto because Toronto is like 2.2 right now. So <laughs> we're not gonna talk about the major uh, cities. But what is the upside now for you, uh, especially with a compressed cap rate when you're comparing Apple to Apple uh, between Canada and US, especially? That the cap rate even is not there. Yeah, well, you know, with with the value add type of strategy, a compressed cap rate actually works in your favor uh, because every dollar of NOI your property is producing, you know, that, that's going to give you uh, a much higher valuation when you do raise those rents or when you do uh, bring in those improvements. Uh, but the, I think the key right now is in our underwriting. If we're looking at a five year exit. You know, what, what are we assuming the exit market conditions at divestment to be? Um, I think a lot of uh, beginner investors uh, assume that the market's going to be very similar to the way it is now, mm. which is a mistake. Uh, you should always be factoring in a softer market. So uh, higher cap rates mm. and, uh, you know, like a, a softer type of atmosphere for, for selling. Uh, and as long as you're writing that in, uh, including that into your underwriting, you, you should be okay. Uh, you just need to find ways to, to manufacture that value and boost up that NOI. Um, so like, and that's why I said like, you know, we don't really look necessarily at cap rates. We look at, you know, how, where's the value-add component yeah. and how we can, how can we make that work to our advantage? Um, you know, a low cap rate, like I said, if, if we're, if we're able to bring in that value, whichever way we choose to bring in for that specific property, compressed cap rates, you know, it pays us more to do so. Uh, but in the event that, you know, cap rates soften up, uh, we need to be able to exit and hit our numbers. And, and that's where, you know, doing your due diligence and um, underwriting it in a more uh, conservative fashion uh, definitely comes in handy. I think one of the, this is a really good lesson about this, when you're doing the underwriting for the pro forma on the next five, six years, based on your, your commitment with your investors, you have to have more um, like um, conservative approach, especially for the interest rate, because you don't know what's going to happen. So for this example, for uh, I think if you're uh, right now, the market is uh, soft, uh, we're, we're talking about 4.5%, I think, on the commercial spaces, you have to... Um, uh, assume is going to be higher on the next three, four, five years on your exit strategy. I, this is, I think, this is what you you're referring to. Well, for, for for sure, and it's not even you know a lot of people too include a refinance into their underwriting, and yeah. that's going to artificially boost your numbers. What if that refinance doesn't happen? 
or why mm -hmm. rates uh, have increased um, now that you know, like you have to you have to put all of those factors uh, into your underwriting spreadsheet yeah. uh, so, so you can come out with you know like we generally work on you know three to five different scenarios for the same property just assuming different things in the market um, oh, and testing different um, different situations and you know what happens if this happens what if we hit a recession in year four how does this affect our numbers uh, you always look uh, to see how the market performed uh, during the last recessions uh, to give you a, a bit of a hint um, like all this stuff comes into play it's not just a matter of looking at a property typing in a random number on a spreadsheet and saying oh okay well this is my assumption uh, because you're just pulling it out of the air like you actually have to go in and and, and find that the best data, obviously nobody has a crystal ball, uh, but uh, you know, with real estate, it's a cyclical type of business, it's cyclical type of asset. So uh, the more we can look to the past, uh, the, the better it helps us prepare uh, for the future. I think one of the benefits in the US market is the availability of the information. You can find a lot of databases, like you can find CoStar, you can find uh, Zello, um, IRR, a lot of a lot of resources you can base your analysis on. One of them is the comparable prices, and one of them that you mentioned on, on the early discussions that uh, when you're doing the comparable prices for the rent, uh, you have to have a basic or and and do your due diligence on, on based on actual uh, database, and which is not. I'm not gonna say it's not quite uh, here in Canada. We don't have this kind of massive information online. I think. Yeah, but, but there's still, you know, Texas is a non-disclosure state, right? So you will never know, uh, oh, yeah. you know, seller, True. right? You will never know what the asset traded for. Uh, so like, like there's, there's pros and cons, yeah. uh, but, but I think it all comes down to like, you have to know your market. And generally speaking, like even in a, in a non-disclosure state, you can pretty much know what an asset traded for, mm. um, you know, just by having a feel for what the market's doing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it all comes down to knowing your market, knowing your comps, you know, wh what are the comparable properties? What do they offer? You know, what, what type of, um, you know, what amenities do they have? What's their pricing strategy? You know, where has that asset gone in terms of uh, the past 10 years and what have they done with it? What's been successful? What did they test? What, what didn't work? Mm. And that's where having a great asset manager comes in, a property manager who knows their stuff. Um, like they're worth their weight in gold because their their hands are in the the market on on a daily basis. Mm. Um, so so they can definitely help you a lot with in terms of where the market's going, picking up on shifts um, with, with you know vacancy or you know tenant expectations, all that sort of stuff. I think what you said is interesting because I see that your management style is based on your core team basically because your all of your strategies based on long distance management. So can you tell us about how you created your core team? Uh, how long you managed to have this core team by joint ventures? Because like uh, one of the major uh, team uh, team members is gonna be your property managers, as, as you mentioned. So how you, like you, uh, you're an investor in Milton and you're, you're uh, controlling your assets on in Texas, like six hours uh, away by flight. So. How was how how was your journey was building your team in in the US? Yeah, well, well, real estate is a business of partnerships. <laughs> that, that's that's what it is. Like you're not going to take down a 200 unit apartment building on, on your own. It, yeah. It's very rare. Um, and, and each person on your team is going to bring in uh, something something different. You know, for instance, if 
if you're looking at taking down uh, any sort of asset, uh, you're going to need on your team somebody who can bring in the capital, somebody to manage it. If it's a heavy construction type of project, somebody with construction experience who can run it, uh, you'll probably need a KP to sign on the debt um, and bring the balance sheet. Um, all these people come into play uh, one deal. Um, and, and that's, I think, you know, one of the first questions he asked me was, you know, going from single family to multifamily. With single family, there's, you don't have that team approach uh, to doing a deal. Uh, you know, it's generally, you know, you'll do a joint venture partnership with one other person, potentially maybe have three people involved, uh, but you won't be able to assemble a core team who can then go out and, and efficiently and effectively take down a, a large apartment building. It, there, there's this gonna happen. Yeah. in your favor. Yeah. And, and for instance, for underwriting, you know, I can talk intelligently about underwriting, but I, I suck at spreadsheets. Like that, that's not my, that's not my forte. Yeah, uh, okay. so, so by bringing in people who are, you know, competent underwriters where that's their strength, you know, the investors win because they're getting a, a, a specialized team. You know, I don't specialize in underwriting. Like that's, that's not my strength, uh, but I can, I can, um, you know, I can raise capital. I, I can I can speak intelligently to investors. I, I can I can bring an interest to the project, but I'm not going to sit there for six hours a day and just punching numbers. Mm. Uh, single family home investing, you know, you're probably wearing like six different hats. Uh, multifamily, you can really specialize and bring in true experts for each each component. Hundred percent, hundred percent. You open another subject, which is raising capital. Uh, what was uh, like uh, the the challenges for you especially when you're bringing money from canada especially from canadian investors to the us it's, it's a little, little bit tricky because it's it's combined with security lawyers you have to comply with the us 506 b and c and then comply again with the security commission in ontario uh, convince uh, or have this kind of talk with your canadian investor how was this uh, process for you i think it's uh, it's not an easy process but you know what, like, it's not, I think where a lot of Canadians go wrong is they don't seek out expert advice in the first place. Yeah. Uh, you know, like I, I, I've got a webinar running. I did it with a cross-border tax specialist, uh, Lori Keatley. And, um, you know, every time we've run that webinar, there's always somebody on the call who's done it all wrong because they just went online onto Google and typed in investing in the United States and they set up their LLC and they do everything right for an American, but it's all wrong for a Canadian. Mm. Uh, so number one, you have to talk with the right people who actually know what they're doing uh, because that can save you from double taxation, uh, all, all that stuff. Like nobody wants to pay more tax than they have to. Yeah. Uh, and it all comes down to structuring, right? Like uh, there's the structuring component to make sure you're tax efficient. And then also there's the compliance component to make sure you're you're raising the capital in a legal way, okay. and like you mentioned, you know if you're raising uh, raising capital for a, a deal in the U.S. and bringing in Canadian investors, you have to stay compliant on the U.S. side, but you also have to stay compliant. Uh, you know, in, in Canada, you've got uh, everything's managed provincially. In the U.S., you've got your federal, and then you've got your your state uh, laws there. But if you're working in the exempt market, generally speaking. Like the rules are very similar no matter where you go. Yeah. So if you're working only with the credit investors, like the criteria you have to meet or they have to meet uh, remains generally the same. Yeah. Um, it's just, yeah, ma making sure you're, you're dotting your I's and crossing your T's because 
you know, especially with structuring, like if you set, set something up the wrong way, your investors are going to be paying way more tax and, you know, they're not going to be very happy with you. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and it's your job to be the expert to make sure that everybody's able to deploy their money um, in a very cost-effective way. I think this is one of the things that uh, make you successful is to create an investor-friendly deal. And one of them, especially if you're bringing people from Canada to US, is to how to uh, emphasize and uh, elaborate and on the process of transfer the capital from your province, on the Canadian province, to the US state, uh, and so on. Um, I think that my next question will be, if you can uh, tell us about your largest deal so far. Oh yeah, the, the biggest one, uh, 278 units. Um, that, that's in uh, Orlando. Mm. And uh, you know, it's a class B uh, value mm. add type of deal. Um, so, uh, you know, like the bulk of the value adds being done already. Uh, so right now it's just riding out for the next, uh, probably year, um, before, before, uh, before we exit there. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's like, uh, it's on a, it's on a lake. Uh, so it's like a resort style thing. You can mm-hmm. go out and, you know, paddle boat. Uh, you can, you know, you've got a little beach there. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, so it's in Orlando. So it's, uh, Florida. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh. Yeah, it's, it's, it's literally, literally like a resort. Um, and one of the cool things is one of my investors, he actually, um, he, he grew up in one of the units in that building when he was younger. Okay. His parents like rented mm-hmm. there. And then now he's actually invested and in, he's a part owner of, of, of this apartment building. So it's, it's kind of cool to be a full circle type of thing. 100%. So what was the purchase price? Uh, can you oh. disclose this or? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so like it's closed already, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's closed. Yeah. So, so you're like a $30 million purchase. Oh, okay. Uh, um, so, so it was uh, definitely a larger, larger one. Uh, and like, I, I'm, I'm one person in the team that, that did the deal. Like, it's not, it's not me all by myself doing everything. Yeah. It, it yeah, takes yeah. people, right? Uh, but, uh, but yeah, so that, that was really cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was kind of neat seeing kind of the property transform, uh, you know, doing a lot of exterior work, changing those color scheme, interior renovations. Um, and, uh, especially during COVID, uh, there, there was like a three month kind of speed bump in terms of like rents dropping and, and uh, some vac- some vacancy, but then, you know, th- things rented up pretty quick. And then we've seen some explosive growth after that. So mm. I think, you know, if you look at COVID, three months of kind of unsteadiness is pretty good uh, considering how everything else kind of happened in the world with, you know, small business and yeah. everything. Um, I, I would take three months of rockiness over, you know, everything else. So, uh, you know, very, very happy to be in the multifamily space, uh, you know, with, with things going wrong. Yeah. This is really upside of this business is uh, it's, it's a, uh, I hear it from one of the investors before it's our Megadon proof business plan. You're trying to be on, on a position when uh, the wave ha- hit you, you're going to have an actual protection to your assets and your investments. So about this building, what was the upside about this building? Like uh, from management perspective, like where do you find like there's an actual upside you can enhance and bring the um, net operation income high in, in a higher level? Yeah, so this was the 70s vintage uh, building. Hmm. And um, 
you know, like the, the interiors were a little bit dated. Hmm. Um, like they weren't like super, super old, but you know, they didn't have the brand new cabinetry. They didn't have the granite countertops. So hmm. our business plan for the interiors was to go in, uh, do your, uh, your cabinet doors, your countertops, uh, you know, have a couple of variations on that with the backsplash, new appliances, that sort of hmm. stuff. And, uh, you know, with, with that, we were able to, to achieve rent premium, um, because, you know, like the, the rest of the rental comps, uh, that, you know, they were superior. So mm. we were able to elevate the property in that respect. Um, the other side on the operational side, like there was a rebranding, uh, that happened at the property, uh, more, uh, physical improvements in terms of, you know, exterior look. So just updating the look and feel of the property, uh, making it feel a whole lot better when you're on site. Um, and, uh, you know, some additional income streams. So adding, uh, you know, premium parking, uh, some additional storage uh, type of, uh, you know, facilities there to bring in some other revenue streams, uh, renting private yards that you can mm -hmm. use. You know, when you're, when you're acquiring an asset, um, you're not, not just focusing just on rent. Like there's a whole bunch of other income streams that you can bring in as well. Yes. Um, that don't have to be limited to just your, your rent premium that, that you're aiming for. So you can always look at, um, you know, Wi-Fi could be an add-on uh, yeah. service, uh, premium parking, like you can just be creative and, and see what other uh, assets in the area are doing. And maybe you can bring that into your, your asset and uh, get some extra money. I think one of our, uh, what we did before in our, one of our building was uh, the fiber, to be honest. Uh, we increased the premium only with, with minor uh, touch without even touching the, the unit, which is uh, simply uh, the Wi-Fi and as a, as a fiber. So yeah, 100% agree. Uh, on this, uh, just for, for insight on the new markets values and, and, and current status, what was uh, purchase cap rate and what was on your, because you enhance based, based on this, you enhance the, the net operation income. So what was your expectation for the new cap rate after bringing the, the property to the, the current market value? Yeah, so in terms of our underwriting, like we're, we're always very conservative mm. uh, in, in terms of like where we're aiming to bring the bring the asset. Like like I said before, mm. when we're looking at our exit, like we're banking on the market to be softer uh, than it was when we acquired it. So uh, going back, if I can remember correctly, I think we were at a four and a half cap when we acquired it, I think. That's good. Yeah, I think it was four and a half. And actually, I, with, with this one too, uh, our occupancy actually went up uh, before closing, uh, which, uh, which we were- Again, good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so we were, yeah, occupancy was like 97%, something like that, uh, if I it's remember. Pretty high. Yeah, and uh, yeah, so cap rate would have been four, four and a half, I think for maybe 4.8, something like that um, at the time. And, uh, and obviously now like things are so compressed. Um, and, um, and yeah, so like looking at uh, hitting the numbers and stuff out of exit, maybe a, another year or so. Um, and, uh, and that uh, would bring us to the end of the, uh, the project. 100%. So uh, uh, one of the things is that you mentioned is um, for the Canadian to US is not to do is creating an LLC. 
And you mentioned also that the first thing you have to do is to consult your lawyer and uh, your accountant for the cross-border. So um, how heavily you're, you're dealing with Canadian investor right now? You're more focused on Canadian investors or U.S. investors? Yeah, right now it's about 50-50. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, half my investor database is Canadian, the other half is in the U.S. Uh, you know, a lot has to do with, um, you know, like, like the, the YouTube channel I run, like all the different assets we have, like we attract people on both sides of the border. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like, especially with the Canadians, stru structuring is so important. Mm. And, you know, there's a couple different ways you can do it. Uh, it's just making sure it fits uh, best for you. There's a withholding tax that almost nobody knows about. So, you know, how are some, what are some ways that you can, avoid having, uh, you know, the withholding tax applied, you know, that that's, that's something you have to consider. Um, and, and also like, how are you going to structure yourself on the Canadian side of the border? Are you planning on repatriating the capital? Mm. Um, you know, all these things kind of come into play and, you know, I'm not an accountant. Um, so I can't give sure. personal accounting advice, but, uh, definitely have the right people to direct people to, um, just to make sure like you're, you're, they're structuring because you, it's not just, okay, I'm going to invest in this one deal. It's like, are you planning on investing for the next 10 years in the US? Mm. How many deals a year are you planning on doing? Well, if so, you know, maybe you're going to be setting up um, like a C Corp and then, you know, you have your EIN number. So that way you, you avoid the, the withholding tax because then the, you know, the LLC or the LP, whichever, whichever, how, how it's done, it's going to pay your C Corp and then, that way it's an American entity that you don't have to worry about withholding tax. Like mm. all this stuff kind of comes into play. 100%. Um, my last, it can be fun question, which is how you describe your uh, superpower or strengths? Oh boy. Uh, I would say my superpower is coming up with big, crazy ideas and actually making it happen. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, we just had the multifamily conference a couple yeah. of like three weeks ago and that was a big crazy idea and everybody said i was crazy for doing it and uh we, you know the, the team made it happen so um you know we, we've got some even crazier ideas in the works right now and uh yeah like you just have to dream bigger and think bigger because I, I think that that's one thing with real estate investing too if you just limit yourself to thinking about small deals the decisions you make the people you will bring on your team they'll be like, you're confining yourself to the small thinkers. If you think bigger with where you're going, you're going to be able to bring on different people on your team that are going to be able to elevate you. The decision-making process will be different. Hmm. Um, so for, for me, I, I think like having those big ideas forces me to think on a bigger scale. And uh, yeah, like, like, like the team we put together because of that is just rock solid. So I remember you mentioned on the conference, you were telling someone about you're going to bring Kevin O'Leary and he laughed and you did it in one year, I think. Oh, yeah, that, that was <laughs> that was my fiance. We were sitting on the couch watching yeah. Shark Tank and yeah. I turned to her and I said, you know what? I'm going to have Kevin O'Leary speak at my, at my conference that I was thinking of doing. And uh, she just kind of smiled and said, OK, whatever. <laughs> and, and like yeah. a couple of days later, I had Kevin booked. Um, so, you know, we, we can't, I, I can't talk about the speakers we have lined up for next year yet, yeah. but, uh, I've just been, I've been on the phone with some pretty, pretty cool people, uh, the past couple of weeks. So uh, it was really successful this year, to be honest, everyone yeah. was enjoying the, the, about the, the event. 
uh i think my last question will be what was the last uh, book uh, grabbed your attention on real estate uh, or business in general um the the one book i read over and over and over again is uh, by russell brunson it's expert secrets hmm. i i think that's a great book in terms of uh building out frameworks uh communicating your ideas in a very like packageable way Hmm. um expert secrets for sure it's not a real estate book it's more like a business kind business, of yeah. book uh but uh yeah it's excellent uh the final one will be how people can reach you and follow your success yeah for sure uh so the best way uh if you're interested in multifamily uh, investing uh, check out my youtube channel uh youtube.com slash seth ferguson and we post a, a weekly youtube video uh specific to multifamily every single week so yeah. Uh, it's, uh, we've got hundreds and hundreds of videos already. Yeah. Thanks a lot for being with us today. And we're really happy to bring you again to the show. Thanks a lot. Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed this. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot.